know her as Mighty Magulang on TikTok, where she posts her videos on Philippine history that have gone viral many times over. But beyond being a creator slash educator in the digital realm, Mona Magno-Veluz is also a genealogist and the national president of the Autism Society Philippines. In her usual engaging manner, she chats with us about the many interesting facets of her life, about creating educational and empirical content in a time of myths and disinformation, about genealogy, and about her journey as a parent with a child on the autism spectrum. My name is Leah Cruz. On this episode of What Glass Ceiling, we talk to Mona Magnoveluz. Welcome to What Glass Ceiling. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Leah, for having me. Happy to be here. Now, you're a digital creator among many other titles that you hold and very impressive titles. You're a genealogist, you're a you're a history buff, you're you're quite an advocate for for autism and disability inclusion. You're all of those things, but you're also, as I mentioned in the beginning, a digital creator on TikTok who's gone viral recently many, many times. And, you know, the that's not actually your usual combination of terms that you find on the bio of a content creator. You don't find genealogist, history buff, advocacy worker. You don't find that usually on a content creator's bio. So you definitely don't seem like your run-of-the-mill digital creator. You know, I was, uh, I am a digital creator by accident, or I'm a prominent digital creator by accident. I am, first and foremost, of course, uh, the National President of the Autism Society Philippines. That's what I do most of the week. And on the side, when the pandemic was starting to get to me, that was when I uh, create content for TikTok. And it was really a, uh, a mental health exercise for me in the beginning. Uh, I, I am a genealogist and there's just so much I wanted to share about history and genealogy and I felt it was a good time to, to do that. Uh, it kept me productive, it kept, it kept me creative and the, everything else that came with it, the, the acknowledgement of being a digital creator or you know being asked about my opinions around uh, issues of uh, in in social media. That is just a, I guess, a byproduct of my passion, which is, uh, you know, the genealogy and the advocacy. Was it was it something that you fell into by accident? Like literally, was it an accident to open the app, or was it something that you were <laughs> you were curious about? No, and, no, and you said, <laughs> no, no, Ryan. Uh, so I was I was a lurker on the app for about a year. I wanted oh, to understand. Okay. At, at first, I don't understand. Why am I getting all of these videos? I didn't subscribe to this. So I didn't get the idea of the FYP. And my children were also kind of coaching me. Uh, Mom, don't, don't watch that. This is what you should watch. They would send me links to stuff I can watch or people I can subscribe to. And in the context of me wanting to understand the platform, uh, I said, might as well open it. Might as well open an account. And in, you know, at the back of my head, I was also thinking of the Autism Society. How can we create uh, an account for the Autism Society? So all of that was 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 kind of uh, the, I guess, the triggers of why I actually opened my account. And the the fact that my the content that I can create is only about history and genealogy because my kids don't want me to dance or do, uh, you know, dubs and all of that. 
So I ended up doing genealogy and, and history because that's also what I love. So it was it was an accident, I suppose, to a certain degree, but there was a deliberate uh, desire to understand the platform. How old are your kids, if you don't mind me asking? My eldest is going to turn 30. My second son is 22. He just turned 22. And my youngest is 18. I am uh, 50, 54 years old. I'm turning 55 this year. Is it difficult to be a digital creator who's not a member of Gen Z? Like, kasi yung mga, ano, the others I on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> that that was actually one of the things which which made me more surprised about the whole uh you know the going viral thing because in my head I was going to do my content even if it's just my children watching me. I really just wanted to understand the platform. Uh so when the Gen Z started appreciating my my material, it made me think also that there must be a, a gap, a void that my content is filling in their lives. So they must have had their fill of, you know, the usual fare on, on TikTok and my content made sense to them uh, because it's something that they didn't have. So I guess it's the whole, you know, niche, uh, niche thing, but yeah. I can imagine that there are some pros and some cons, some good things, some bad things about not necessarily being in that age group and being on TikTok of all the platforms on social media. Because, you know, it's a very young audience, I think, a very young crowd. What are the pros and cons? Um, I think the pro, you know, one of the pros that I see from, uh, from a content development standpoint I'm really coming in with kind of like a teacher's hat. But I have all of this information that I thought kids are taught these days, but apparently they, they're not. So it, it gives me that opportunity to help. That's that's how I see it. Now, you know, you, you don't know about this, so I'll, I'll let you know. On the con side, it also opens me up to the lowest of the low on, on social media. And these are trolls. These are people with bad language. and uh, th that that comes with I look at that as a learning opportunity I am able to be more intimate with the platform's functionalities because I'm trying to manage all of the the you know bad words and strange comments that come into my 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 platform so yeah so anyway uh, I, I look at the experience really as an opportunity okay so having a sort of tita image on TikTok, it, does it still give you some sort of authority or they don't care? Like the, the trolls or the ones who leave the bad words or the bad comments, it, it doesn't matter. doesn't matter. doesn't really matter. There's no anon. There's no, I think the, the, na the very nature of those creatures who lurk in the internet with uh, you know, fake names, uh, no profile pictures, no um, genuine content on the platform. Uh, that's that's really who they are. That's the nature of the the their existence. So it's something that I have gone to expect, and it is uh, really up on my end to adapt to that. I cannot control them, but I can control how I react to them. Is there is there a certain pressure to produce? content since because now you have an audience you have a large audience and yeah. 
is there pressure to produce content that will reach out to certain age demographics? Or are you really focused like, no, this is this is what I want to post. This is what I want to produce. Or do you make sort of an effort to reach out? To a certain degree, uh, I do want to come up with relevant uh, information. And that is something that is a, a my editorial decision. So I make those that call. There are individuals who want me to talk about a certain topic that is uber, you know, uber political, which is already outside the the confines of history and genealogy. So I have to balance that. I want to be relevant, give them what they want, but still sticking to my intention of of developing history, you know, conversations around history and genealogy. That's your ultimate goal. I mean, if we can put it in one sentence, it would be yeah. it would be that. And I, I do want uh, Filipinos to be more into genealogy. Unlike other uh, European countries, for instance, or the U.S., the Philippines has very, very little appreciation for the study of their family trees. We, many people don't do it. They don't know anyone beyond their grandparents. We don't have access to information about our ancestors. And I want to create the demand for it so that the government can start making available historical information, making it accessible through, you know, through uh, online platforms, making it, you know, digitizing it and, you know, making it available to to us. So uh, that is the, I guess, the, the dream there. Now we can have the same access to our information, to our ancestors' information, as other countries, other people who are doing this in other countries have theirs. Right, right. And and just in case nobody, I mean, it, it, just in case people are a bit confused, we're talking about family history and family trees because that is what genealogy is. Because it's not a word you come across yes. every day. So basically, genealogy is... It's you what know, you just this, described. There was this seminar that I went to. I was introduced as a gynecologist. Oh my goodness! <laughs> Ang layo naman. What's up to the G? <laughs> what did you say to that? Yeah, hindi po ako marunong magpap smear. I am a gynecologist. So basically, what for yes. those who are not familiar with it, what is genealogy, and what does a genealogist do? Well, genealogy is a subset of the study of history, but it is focused on the study of family trees, family connections. In my case, what I do is I look for primary documents to establish connections between people across generations and look at how relevant they were in terms of what was going on in the society during the time that they lived. So that is what I do. How did that happen? I mean, are there many genealogists in the country or are you a select few? Well, there, there are a few. Uh, it, like I said, it is a subset of history. Yeah. So a lot of, uh, you know, historians, a lot of museum curators uh, have, have actually gone into, into that field. However, I focus on and my, my clients, uh, the clients that I have, they are really focused on establishing their family trees. So I kind of got into it. Uh, this was 20 years ago. I wanted to create a unique Christmas gift for our family. The, my husband's family, actually, because we have a lot of old people. I, I talk to them a lot during 
uh, you know, during family reunions. And I thought, oh, this would make a great book. And I said, I'm going to make the book. And I started it like middle of the year for Christmas. And I went to, you know, the centers, did the, did the research, and I realized I was good at it. After I did my husband's family tree, I did mine. And I, I was able to, uh, in a very short time, I was able to est establish the tree up to 1740. So I said, "Oh, this is I'm good at this." <laughs> it's it's a it's a I don't know how how to explain it, but it just makes sense to me sometimes where I should go, uh, you know, how I should at, at, attack the the source. So immediately after that, I had friends who I I talked about my experience, and they said, hey, "Can you can you do this for me? I'll pay you ten thousand pesos." Okay, sure, I'll do it for you, and I can find it in like. 30 minutes, whatever they, they wanted to look for. So that kind of start, gotten started on, on you know, the um, that that kind of side game to my corporate work. Because I was, I was at the time, working in, in corporate, and it was something that I want, I really wanted to do. Um, but of course, you, you know how we are, the mommies, we have to you know, to think of our children going to school. And in my case, my eldest son is on the autism spectrum, so he had therapy. So, you know, I cannot I cannot let my job go. But there was this thing that I really, and I was interested in, I was passionate about, and I didn't want to give up. So while I was doing my corporate gig, that was what I did on the side, as side hustle. So basically, the work of a genealogist involves research and looking. Yes. Tracking things down. How do you manage to get it done so quickly? Well, it's not always that quick. Okay. Uh, there is a, a research center in White Plains in Quezon City that I used to go to. It is the Church of the Latter-day Saints Family History Center. Uh, online, they are familysearch.org. And what they've done, and this is a, a global, uh, something that they do uh, you know, globally, they digitize records. And they put it uh, in microfilm, and now they've they've, uh, they've put it online, and people can access it. So that that was one. But there are gaps in their records, or not all records are uh, are uh, annotated, for example. So it's difficult to search. In some in, in some cases, you would really have to go to the um, the hometowns of the individual to look for records. I also go to cemeteries a lot because when there are no uh, there are no documents. You have to look for where they are buried, so you can get the primary, uh, the primary data, which is birthday and death day, and from there you can look for the the records. Wow! Did you have to study for so this? It's not always quick. Yeah, it's not, It sounds uh, like it are, takes a very long time, actually. And there are there are stone walls. So if there are times when you can only go this far. Okay. Like for example, for my for my dad's side of the family, I could only get my great grandfather because the records of Ilo were all bombed out during the war, so they lost all of the records. So, so it's not always that quick. It yeah. could take years also to work on a particular line. How does one become a genealogist? Do you have to study for this? Well, first off, you have to have the interest for it, and you have to have research skills. And there are uh, there are um, certifications that you can get uh, in genealogy, depending on the area you want to practice. Okay. Why, why is it important for someone to know and look back 
on your own family history? Why is it why is it precious knowledge? I I don't necessarily feel that it is required. I mean, people can move forward if they want to. In my case, I, I want to share how important how it impacted me as an individual. When I started doing genealogy and I started deep diving into the myths of our family, the oral histories, and matching them up to records, especially during the war and a little before that, I finally found compassion, not for, for my ancestors, because uh, you know they, they made certain decisions that, that were difficult. And I, I'm going to uh, give an example. My great-grandfather, my father's grandfather, he had to work for the Japanese because the Japanese said, if you don't work for us, and he was a, he was a, a cavalry guy, so he, he knew how to ride horses. If you don't work for us and start helping us create this new, um, the, the new police for, for the Philippines, I'm going to kill all your family. So it got me thinking. I was ashamed that my great-grandfather worked for the Japanese, but if he didn't, we wouldn't exist. So there, I started to, cre- to have compassion for those who came before me. I started to have compassion for my parents when they made decisions that didn't make sense to me as a child. And I started to um, value that connection to to. Um, you know, to my my ancestors. So I started putting together heirlooms. Like, why why is this piece of jewelry relevant? Why is this piece of jewelry important? Why is it important? And, and it is important for me to pass it on to my children or to my nieces, that kind of thing. I started getting in, into all that. And to me, the value has been, it really has brought us, brought me, together with the rest of my family. Siguro I felt before that I was a little bit more distant. I was a little bit more moving forward. You know, let's let's get rich. Let's uh, travel. Let's do this. Let's do that. Without really looking back at the past. And this entire thing has brought me back to, to that love, that fundamental love for family and the fundamental love for the Philippines. We have all, I think, had opportunities to travel or opportunities to look at work, uh, working abroad. And after doing all this, I was more, I think, passionate about staying in the Philippines and helping the Philippines because of that connection. Do you think it's a? Do you think it comes with getting older and getting more mature that 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 you want to look back on the family and and. No, because when I when I started getting into it, I was in my thirties. Okay. So that was uh, that was like um, I was the young one, that, that only young person who wanted to talk to the titas who 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 were talking about their ancestors. And it only takes one. Yeah. So if I can find another one person in the next generation who wants to hear it. I'm just going to pass on the baton, so to speak. So there has to be someone in every generation that's assigned to be the family historian so that things don't get lost. With TikTok, though, being found nowadays to be, you know, such a den of misinformation, what's it like to create... 
<laughs> What's it like to create content based on facts, on empirical evidence? That has always been my my um, you know my, my battle cry. Empirical history is what I want to talk about. So if people want to start talking about uh, like uh, the the what ifs of you know of, of the past or total misinformation or uh, things like my opinion on certain events. All of those are in the realm of other stuff. I, and this is what I tell them. That's political science. That's in the realm of, uh, you know, of uh, a different kind of uh, history versus what I do. What I do is everything that I say has to be backed up by a certain document, whether it's primary or secondary. And that is the, um, the commitment that I've given to myself. I try not to, to deviate from that plan. So... With the number of people who have uh, challenged history, it is it is really difficult sometimes to have conversations over. I have, I have certain certain posts that people um, people uh, what's the word they challenge me about it, and sometimes the exchanges are already so long, and at a certain point I begin to wonder: Is this person a troll? Where they're just trying to get me to talk to them and to, you know, elicit some, some, uh, you know, some words so that they can get, they can rack, rack in more, more revenue. So I now have a, a, a three, a, a three comment rule that I will exchange, have an exchange with you, but I'm, I have a limit of three comments. So beyond that, I won't respond to you anymore. You know, little things that I used to, Kind of let it make sense, but I will. In, I will still try to help them out if they have the wrong uh, perception or understanding of history. Also, uh, three minutes is not a lot uh, on TikTok, and I have to condense the literal lifetimes in you know two minutes. So I have, uh, and it's link a link in my bio, um, a list of all of the readings. So if you want. To read about what I was talking about, you could. There is a a, a bibliography that that's what I have, and uh, yeah. What are your thoughts on historical revisionism? I actually had a uh, a post about that. That historical revisionism is not bad per se. It is uh, what what that means is you have more information about the past so that you will correct what has been communicated before. And my example was about the last general who surrendered during the American period. For the longest time, we said it was this guy, but it's actually another guy because we have new research to back it up. But in contrast, historical denialism is something else altogether. This is when there is a nefarious intention behind it, where you want to distort um, or misrepresent the past. So that's... Uh, that's very different. And uh, I also mentioned in that post that there are countries in the world where historical denialism is a crime, like a, literal, a literal crime uh, for which you can go to jail. Uh, and this is specific to the Holocaust. So in Germany, for example, if you say that uh, you know, the Holocaust is a good thing, then you can go to jail. 
are we are we using the right term then? Should we be using historical denialism? That's what I use. Because historical uh, revisionism can be both good and bad. The, that is not inherently bad. But denialism has a nefarious intent behind it. Oh, interesting, interesting. Um, coming from, you know, the genealogy background and the, the history buff background, how difficult is it to see specific cases of historical denialism today? For you personally, um, the history is very complex, right? So there are people who put different interpretations into certain events. So what I do to kind of sieve out opinion is look at the facts that they present, and uh, if you just look at the undeniable facts, like. Uh, and again, that's the, that's the uh, discipline of genealogy. Yeah. Um, you cannot invent where or when someone was born. Yeah? That's a fixed thing. And uh, I, I kind of apply that discipline to, to looking at history. And I invite people to do the same. Because if people start talking about opinions and kind of uh, blending it with uh, the facts, uh, the historical facts, then it becomes, sure, it becomes fodder for YouTube, but it isn't really accurate. So I prefer to sieve out all of the facts, take all of the facts that, that uh, are, are connected with that event or that time in our, our history and uh, kick out the opinion and we stick to that. What are your observations on how information is consumed today? Whether it's, you know, in smaller doses, it has to be visual, it has to be a certain way, or... I actually lament the fact that kids don't read as much. If you have uh, a long post, like the, the old school blogs where, you know, it's kind of like a diary, like there's a date and then you have a whole bunch of words with a little, you know, a, a couple of pictures. Nobody reads through that, in my, in my uh, opinion. A lot of kids nowadays have gone to short, short video format. So they, they consume their information on, uh, on TikTok, on Instagram Reels, on Facebook Reels, to, the, to a point where they are unable to deep dive into topics anymore. I've observed this even in my TikTok where I, I see the metrics of, I mentioned I have a link uh, on my bio which is like the bibliography for all of my content. One percent of people who access my information go there. One percent, if less even. So there's not a lot of people wanting to deep dive or wanting to read the full story behind it. They're okay with the with the TikTok version. How do you? How does one remedy that? <laughs> um. I guess the, the, there's a the the way around it really is I make it easier. Like uh, my content on TikTok is now on Facebook, it's now on YouTube, and in YouTube I and in Facebook I now have read for enrichment, and instead of giving them the names of the books, 
I have to look for URLs. I have to look for something that is already online for them to look at because they will not look for a book. That's true. So I, I just have to make it easier for everyone to to read more if they wanted to, I suppose. And and that's what I've done over the last couple of months. Um, I abandoned including books as references and just look for parallel uh, websites that I could share. That sounds like a lot of extra effort. Those are a lot of extra miles that you go that you go through. <laughs> It's it's something again. If you want to educate, if you want to help them, and I look at them as my children. Because if I want my children to learn, I have to make it a little easier for them to 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 do this. And if you remember, I said my eldest son is on the autism spectrum. So I think for many many years now, I've kind of been. It's now I think second nature to me. Uh, if somebody doesn't get it, then we adjust, we adapt to make sure that that person gets it. And it's kind of been uh, my approach to being a manager, my approach to letting my kids study. So that's where we are. Everything that we've discussed so far is so incredibly interesting. And I have like a billion more questions I'd like to ask you. But on top of all of this, you, you've already mentioned your son, who's on the autism spectrum. You're also the president of the National Autism Society, a, a very staunch advocate for disability inclusion. Can you tell us about this part of your life? Okay, so when, I, uh, uh, when my son was diagnosed many moons ago, um, this was 25 years ago, the first group that we sought help from was the Autism Society Philippines. Uh, we became instant members and we've been members ever since. Every time I had uh, you know, a low point in my, uh, my, parent, uh, my parenting life, I needed uh, help uh, with, with my son, they're the people I turned to. When my son graduated from high school, uh, we said, we need to give back. We've They've done so much for us, and it's now our turn to, to help them. So we volunteered, my son and I. I was a volunteer writer for uh, a time, and uh, when, uh, when they were calling for um, nominees for the trustee position, I was nominated and I won. I have been uh, the longest-serving president. So this was 10 years ago. Uh, I have been, uh, I have been uh, working with them since. And... Um, this uh, is, and when I first started, I was actually still in corporate. I only left corporate about five, six years ago. And uh, what I can say about working for an NGO is the, the satisfaction that I get from executing a project is nothing compared to the, what, what I got from, from corporate. Like, no comparison at all. The, the my heart is full every time uh, I I execute something really well. Uh, one of my pet projects is actually uh, employment for persons on the autism spectrum. Um, I was a talent I was head of talent acquisition for a BPO. That was my last role before I I left corporate, and I kind of took that skills and brought them to the advocacy. So. We have we filled like 250 positions over the last five, six years with for persons with autism in 
11 regions. And uh, you know, we're still going strong. I'm happy about that. You know, I actually have friends whose kids are on the spectrum as well. They're young. They're very young. And hearing about how far you've come with your son, I'm sure that the question they would ask is they would be looking for reassurance that, you know, so, a, a child, your child, who is on the spectrum, can actually grow up and lead a full and satisfying life. Is that is that some sort of reassurance that you would be able to give them? Well, individuals on the autism spectrum are different. Each one is different. How autism manifests in my son will be different from how autism manifests in somebody else's child. And the only thing I could say is that all of them can live rich, fulfilling lives if there is early intervention. Of course, there's parent acceptance. And there is that, um, that preparation, the, the hard prep on the side of the parents, where they go to school, uh, what therapists they go to, all of that. It kind of factors into how successful uh, the prognosis of the individual on the spectrum is going to be. And for parents, you don't have to stress about it, though. I think it's important for parents to um, be confident in what they know and what they can do and be open to what your child will teach you. In the end, at least with my son, all of my plans kind of didn't work out. It really was him as an adult who told me what he wanted to do. So all of the side plans that, they, oh, when my son is this age, it's going to do this. Oh, when my son is this age, it's going to do this. In the case of my son, no, he, he kind of broke that, that uh, you know, whatever mold I was starting to put together. He, he wanted to, you know, he, he wanted to have self-determination. He wanted to make his own choices. That's not something you seem you were very prepared to face. Uh, I was, I, I'm a planner. So when I was starting out on this, this journey, I overplanned. <laughs> if, if, if that is at all possible, like I, I uh, yeah, I just overplanned and I overthought about the future and I stressed about it a little bit. Uh, but when it, it came down to it, the way that we raised our child was, was good enough for him to be prepared to make his own decision. So I guess for all of the younger parents out there, it is more important for you to teach your child how to be self-sufficient. More than you know, acquiring the skills and being covering over them and teaching them to do this or that. The self-sufficiency is the, the important factor there. Um, it, kids on the autism spectrum are ha have very weak instincts. And it sometimes is important for you to teach them that. Like, and what will you do if you get lost? Their instinct might not be the safest one. So, so in my case, we even simulated, we even simulated situations that we are uncomfortable with. My son had a fascination for cars. So what if I what if we simulate you getting hurt by a car? My there was a time my my, my son was uh was fascinated with smoking. Like he, he felt it was cool. Okay, let's do it. Let's let's smoke. <laughs> so it was all about, uh, uh, like I guess, preparing him for for the choices that he he uh, 
he may want to take and that we know might not be good for him. Okay, you want to? Okay, let's go. Let's do it. And that communication between me and my son, again, my son is verbal and, 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 and able, so that's, that's a good thing for me. But there are a lot of individuals on the autism spectrum who cannot have that kind of exchange with their parents. So, yes, it's a, it's a tough life, but I think uh, the parents whose kids are on the spectrum can you know, figure it out. I'm confident that they could. You take on so much. And how do you, how do you manage, really? I mean, for yourself. I should work out, I must say. <laughs> Instead of, as soon as I wake up, the, the first thing I, look is, I do is look at my calendar. Hey, what's going on today? Uh, but uh, it, it, I, I, it really is not uh, about me. It is about um, this orientation that I think I got from the, the NGO also, of servant leadership. And in servant leadership, the concept is we don't put our ego first. We put the needs of the community first. And when you do that, then you are going to be inspired to work. Because you're not thinking about how, look you, how, how good you will look. You will, you, the first thing you think about, oh, this is something we need to fix. This, we need to find a solution for this. And, and that doesn't even, I know, the, the, the ego doesn't even fall into the equation. And I, I do agree that sometimes we take on too much because there's so much to do. And I need to do a better job at, at that, like at the kind of uh, not filling my plate too much. Okay, okay. I, I was also going to ask you, how do you know when your plate is too full? Because I think that, you know, people tend to pile one on top of the other on, on the plate. And before you know it, the entire buffet is there on your plate. <laughs> and looking at it... <laughs> And uh, I, I, I come from, like, I went to an all-girls school, and, and to a certain degree, it's Catholic guilt. <laughs> That's what we say, that sometimes, uh, the nuns told us that, you know, it's, you, you know that you're making the right sacrifice if it hurts. That's, that was what we were taught, that, you know, it's, it's noble to, to sacrifice, all of that. But uh, I think what we know now and, and we, we are better for it is that you have to also give time for yourself and sometimes given that the way i i i work sometimes i'm all in to a point of like you know there's nothing else but that so yeah um i think we all with age come to a point where we know ourselves better and in my case there was a i i know the time i, I have that feeling already that I don't want to do this anymore. I want to do something else. I'll get back to it sometime, but I'm just going to do something else for a while. So I, I am able to police myself when something is already getting, getting too much for me and I want to do something. How about for women, for mothers with children on the autism spectrum? What would you want to tell them? Uh, well, mommies, uh, that's again, our journeys are very different. Different, each of our children are very different. So, uh, in, in our autism journey, I think we will never be experts on autism, but we will definitely be experts on our children. It's important for us to observe, it is important for us to uh, be in tune. We have to communicate, we have to uh, 
to be ready for anything and everything that the situation brings. There are times that we are going to be very, very sad or very, very spent, but that you won't even remember that because your child will bring you so much joy and so much, you know, uh, so much fulfillment after you search, reach certain milestones. It's not going to be an easy path. It's not going to be an easy journey. But sometimes you just fix one problem and once they kind of go over the next age, uh, you know, the age uh, milestone, there's a different problem that's going to come up. So it's, uh, it's an exciting life. Just... Uh, be chill and uh, you know take it in take it one day at a time that's what i would tell moms and what are the words that you live by on a daily basis oh para naman tong beauty pageant well pwede ka naman po miss universe no so i you know i i i guess um what one thing that I remember, I remember, it's really what my parents tell me. My our, my parents, both of them are gone now. Um, is is really be the best version of yourself. My I remember my dad telling telling me, "Sige, kung gusto niyo maging kaminero, maging kaminero kayo." Do you know what kaminero is? I actually do not know because what kaminero is. Oh, okay. It's, uh, it's, it's, sorry, it's, it's something that uh, yeah, but that's what my 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 dad used to call the the, the street sweepers. Gusto niyo maging kaminero, maging kaminero kayo. Pero dapat kayo yung pinakamagaling na kaminero. So that was his thing. So excellence has been on my father's uh, kind of talking points ever since we were small. My father's name is Carlo Magno Charlemagne. So he's like the greatest king of Europe in history. So that's so he's 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 kind of. It has always been uh, something that he uh, talks about when he talks about his commitment to excellence. My sister Magno, that my my maiden name Magno means great, right? So he was Carlo Magno is Charles the Great. My sister's name is Excelsis. Excelsis means the greatest. So her name means the greatest of the great. So it's a thing. It's a theme. Then it, it kind of, uh, uh, you know, it, it's still some, it's something that's very relevant to us today. My kids, even when, when I talk to my kids, you know, you're, you're tired, okay, so yeah, but you still have to do the best that you can. Right? It's always, I know, performance level all the time, the best effort you can do at that time. My name, by the way, Mona, actually means cute. So I'm cute and great. Or you're the cutest of the great. <laughs> yes, I'm cute and great. The news means uh, to see the light or enlightened. So I am cute, great, and enlightened. I love it. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the podcast. The cute, great, and enlightened Mona Magnovelus. Yeah.